Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm here with Mark Zilliander, and uh, Mark is a former congressman, uh, uh, United States representative, and you were also an ambassador to the UN. Is that, am I right in saying that? Yes, you are. And uh, can you, t- just uh, to, as a kind of introduction, can you give us a bit of your political journey and uh, the, the shift that you experienced in that journey? Well, thank you, Paul, for having me on your your uh, podcast and for asking such a, it's a great opening question. <clears throat> I really felt called by God at a very young age to get involved in making a difference in the world. I mean, I know that sounds rather ambitious, but uh, whatever contribution I can make, and at nine I told my dad, it's going to be politics, Dad, and to get involved and run for public office and keep running so I can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely what happened. Ran for town council still in college. You were what, uh, 21 at that point? Y- yes. I was actually under 21 running but turned old enough to vote, barely. <laughs> mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so I got elected, barely elected uh, to town council. It was kind of a joke. They said, who is this? young punk, as they called me, uh, wanting to run for office, and I ran against a very seasoned older lady who was uh, quite stable in our Republican Party apparatus, and to unseat her was quite a shock. So a few years later, uh, uh, the state house seat opened up and ran for it, and they told me that I was too young and too inexperienced and couldn't make it, that the first time running for the local was a fluke. And in my heart, it wasn't a fluke. It was a, I know that I don't want to sound overly mystical, but I felt that this was like a destiny almost. And as we talk, and I hope your listeners hear, later on this will balance out quite a bit. And lo and behold, it was a successful race. Uh, for first term, then a second term, and then uh, a third term. So how many, how many years total did you serve in uh, Congress? Well, that was the state legislature. Oh, state legislature. Okay, okay. Yeah, so two-year terms, three of them. And in the third term, <clears throat> I was really praying and felt with uh, input of other uh, more spiritual prophetic types that you're going to be running for Congress soon. And I thought that was impossible because our congressman was young, dynamic, popular, and would never, I, I wouldn't, there's no need to run against him. He's, you know, philosophically correct. And many argued, said, don't argue with the spirit, just wait on the Lord and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So lo and behold, our congressman was appointed budget director for the president, opening a seat up for a special election. So I thought, well, there's the door, and ran for U.S. Congress. Now, that, seven, that, that congressman, uh, remind me, who, who was the 
David Stockman. David Stockman, who was sort of Ronald Reagan's right-hand man in many, many yes. ways, right? Yes, exactly. And, so, and, so you took Stockman's seat? Yes. Okay. And uh, I, I was just uh, clarifying that, uh, that, uh, that in a sense then, you're going to enter Congress in uh, a right-wing uh, Republican uh, Reagan when Reagan was uh, president. Is that right? Exactly. You choreographed that perfectly. <clears throat> it lived in the Bible Belt of Michigan. Obviously not Detroit. It was more in the southwestern rural eight counties, mostly conservative farmers, small business people, <clears throat> veterans, you know, very patriotic Americans. And uh, my dentist, who supported me in the state house, said, you're a fool to think you can win for the United States Congress. Unless you get out of this race and don't cause trouble for the for David Stockman's hand-picked man, who was a Harvard lawyer, he was head of the Republican Party in the largest of the eight counties, uh, you're going to lose your reelection to the state house. A lot of us are going to make sure you do. I mean, it was a direct threat. Yeah. And, of course, being in 28 at the time and full of uh, myself, <laughs> I was hoping it was full of the spirit, but often it was full of myself. I, I didn't take the threat lightly and ran even harder and in a bizarre fluke got elected. And I was elected as one term, two terms, and three terms. And there, in the third term, to get to the heart of the matter, I had this epiphany that I was being used as by certain, I don't know what to call them. I don't, I'm not a conspiratorialist, Paul. Let's just set that up front. But there's a, there's a hidden elite that influence our government in the sense that they're defense contractors. I mean, there are billions and billions of dollars in war and very little money, if none, in, for peace. Uh-huh. And... People have ideological interests and international interests. And as a consequence, found myself entangled in these international interests being on the Foreign Affairs Committee and was traveling all over the world, doing what all politicians and Americans do, telling everyone what to do, supporting an extraordinary effort to destroy the Soviet empire. Uh-huh. And by bankrupting them, by supporting contra rebels and anyone opposing communism, we would support them. And I'd brag about getting weapons into the hands of all these people. And then all of a sudden, I was just praying on the House floor, by the way, of the United wow. States Congress. Wow. And you, you might see when you're watching the State of the Union messages, you will note that the House, there's two sides, Republican and Democrat, when you fit in the president speaks, and they all flock that big room. I was a Republican sitting on the right. I was just listening to boring debate and was praying, and it's as if Jesus spoke to me, but not audibly, but spoke to me in my heart, my mind, so strongly, saying that, is this what I was teaching? Are you emulating as a congressman, 
funding wars and rebels and stinger missiles to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to shoot down these impenetrable Hindi Russian helicopters that were massacring civilians, thinking I was doing a noble cause. And really, it occurred to me I was a huge hypocrite, which shouldn't be a surprise to you, your listeners, a congressman who's a hypocrite. Well, let's, uh, let's get the, the part of the interest here is that you're, you were key in the arming of what would become a radicalized Islam. And what you're describing then under the Reagan administration is that the focus, a kind of demonization of the Soviet Union, had resulted in a, a kind of ignoring of the possibility that uh, the Islamic or, or, or Muslim fundamentalists might themselves take these weapons and use them for purposes other than what uh, they were. That's that's the situation, right? That you're you're describing. Well, I think you characterize it generally, Krupp, but I wouldn't suggest we armed we armed the Mujahideen mm-hmm. with specific uh, weaponry. That, who later became the Taliban, that's correct, but it was, wasn't with intention to support like all the uh, like Al-Qaeda and, is, and ISIS that came years, decades later. But uh, the whole point of arming, your group uses that scripture to take the swords and make them into plowshares, correct? Right. I love that verse, but... Yeah. It went right over my head for most of my young life. Keep in mind, now my early 30s, having spent almost 14, 13, 14 years in elected office already, and now it's at the highest level in the United States, and through that whole time, looking back, what was really accomplished? What? That's the question I was praying about. The Lord, why am I here? This does, something didn't seem quite right mm-hmm. to oppose enemies, to divide uh, voters who are pro this and anti that, divide them with wedges so we, we as Republicans could garner a little groups of supporters and alienate others and hopefully get enough to, to dominate the Congress. I work with Newt Gingrich and other people planning that strategy, which was very successful uh-huh. in the sense that when you use diabolical means, they can work, but there's no redemption. It's going to come back and bite you. And that's, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, for some of our younger listeners, they may not you know, remember the Cold War, the, the atmosphere that was taking place. But maybe a famous book that was written in the period that, that captures it. I don't know if you're familiar with Francis Fukuyama. You know, he writes the book, The End of History, uh, almost portraying the, the, if the, you know, the Soviet Union falls and then the end of the Cold War, he's saying, well, that's the end of the, what, you know, he's referring to the Hegelian dialectic. And of course, what he misses and what maybe all of us missed is the, the, uh, 
there was a, a larger threat looming, and you're describing then that in some way our focus and hatred on a, a demonization of the Soviet Union gave rise then to the threat that we're now faced with uh, with uh, radical Islam. Yes. I yes, I think that's an excellent way of portraying it. And the irony is, the, as you said, the very demonization we made of one group transitioned to demonization of another, and we're <clears throat> engaged in a repeat of the same scenario. It's not using plowshares and the commandments of Jesus to love not only God, but also our neighbor, our those persecuting us, and even our enemies. Uh, rather, we're falling right back in the same trap. Mm. And when you really look, what's Congress about? It's about demonizing people in general, not only the Soviet Union or Islam, but the Democrats demonizing Republicans, the Republicans, the Democrats. It could be racial. Our whole world's full of that. And it seems no wonder we're in such a, I would say, in such paralysis, particularly in Washington, because those of us who helped build this movement of Republican domination were many were believers, loved Jesus, mm -hmm. and loved God. So that... It's very important. It's very important. Then I'll shut up. It's, it, but, which is a huge but, we didn't fulfill the commandment because we hated our neighbor. So the religion, and this is the evangelicalism, uh, and you were an evangelical. That that in in a sense, you know, this is the whether Ronald Reagan was or not, but at least that seemed to be the ideology that he was functioning under. That, that uh, evangelicalism per se, in its demonization of particular enemies, then it was the Soviet Union, now is its, its Islamic religion, that in some way it was the, the means or the tool that was part of the problem. Exactly. Exactly. And so you're you were steeped in that. You you were you, that was the ideology, and maybe is ideology the correct term? In other words, you had uh, that that it, it was a a political tool that utilized the religion as a part of of its own advancement. Absolutely, no question. There was significant criticism of yours truly during the time in Congress for wearing religion on the sleeve, as they would put it. And I probably did so and sounded like uh, Billy Graham speaking rather than a states person. So when that it, epiphany engulfs one, to say, see that what you've been doing is only half right. Therefore, we are half-breed believers, followers of Jesus, which isn't very good. 50% in any school is a failure, and 50% doesn't win an election. I mean, it's just a very poor score. 
particularly when it impacts the lives of so many people and generations to come. Mm-hmm. And is that, I mean, uh, in the uh, presidency that we now have and the atmosphere of the country, does it seem vaguely familiar? <laughs> well, there are some aspects, yes, and some refreshing. There are some refreshing aspects to Trump. I'm not here to promote political candidates at all. Even one, I'm no longer Republican. I'm simply uh, struggling follower Jesus, trying to do, trying in feebility to do the do what the Spirit's leading us to do. But there's not. This isn't going to change, Paul, until, in my view. Christians, particularly who claim to be evangelical or claim to follow Jesus, whatever title or name one wants to put on it, until we become truly completed. And, you know, the word shalom in Hebrew means peace. Muslims say salam alaikum, which is peace be with you. Jesus, in his vernacular Aramaic, you'll hear the words are similar to Hebrew and Arabic, Shalom Allah, peace be with you. And we all think the word peace simply means lack of conflict, which it does. But in the languages of the Old Testament Hebrew, Aramaic of the New Testament, and even the Arabic of the Quran, the word peace has a powerful, multi-level meaning. For example, besides peace or lack of conflict and tranquility, it means to turn around. It means to go back. It means to be completed. It means to finish. When Jesus was on the cross, and he said in Aramaic, it is finished, he used the form of peace, or shalom, in Aramaic. You think, well, it wasn't peaceful. No, he wasn't saying, oh, it is peaceful here on the cross. No, he's saying his destiny was fulfilled and is finished. So the real word for peace should be Peace and completeness. If we want real peace in our life, in our spiritual life, in our relationships, that means we're completed. And Jesus gave a clear formula, Paul, with uh, with a little ambiguity. The way to complete yourself, Mark 12, 29, is to hear there's only one God and to love him and to love your neighbor who could be your worst enemy or your adversary, or even those who are persecuting you. Uh-huh. And that sounds nice spiritually, but the real question is how do we accomplish that in practical life, especially with people we don't care for? And so the, the difference is, you know, that in a uh, one understanding of peace is we're going to achieve peace uh, in and through the struggle, in and through war, in and through violence, that in some way, Peace is the end result of human struggle and violence. What you're describing is, well, no, peace is something that's a positive thing that's posited by God, and it's not something that we can attain. It's just something that we participate in and enjoy. Yes, and there is something we can do. Jesus also clarified uh, a behavioral I would argue algorithm. Now, the Bible doesn't use that terminology in Hebrew or Aramaic, but there is an algorithm, as we would argue, that's drawn from the Scripture 
that helps people uh, in practical terms express love to if it's their wife, their husband, their children, their friends, their family, but even to the enemy. And I was asking God one day, I said, all right, I get it. We need to love people. How do we love someone that we disdain? How does one love someone that's done something horrible to you? How do you cross that bridge of dislike, mistrust, and disdain? How is that bridge crossed? And Jesus gives us the steps, or one could say an algorithm. Now, why an algorithm? Because if one puts these seven attributes to pursue and seven things to avoid, which is a total of 14 items, then you will achieve, without any question, a positive outcome. Um, uh, give, us a, give us an outline, then. What are the, what are the, uh, what are the key steps? Well, thank you for asking. <clears throat> the, this is what we call track five, T-R-A-C, the number five. And that's why we formed track5.org is to help others apply the same type of algorithm in their private lives, in their communities. I believe it can be applied for racial reconciliation, <clears throat> excuse me, and even political reconciliation. So we tried it initially uh, as we're learning and still learning this process in, in a conflict, a real life war overseas, and applied these 14 factors. For example, one of the key factors is don't have an agenda or don't push an agenda. You can have one in a sense, but don't meet a person once trying to love in this way and try to push an agenda. And love, yeah, go ahead. Uh, and I, I was reading a bit in your book, and the, it, it kind of reminded me that what you what you describe in your early life is kind of an incapacity to dialogue or hear what other people are saying. And part of the problem of wanting to convert everybody to your religion or to your political stance was this incapacity uh, to hear the other, which it reminded me of the passage in James that talks about that it's God who has the ability to hear the oppressed and the evil ones or people who are in, in James context, the wealthy, are incapacitated in their ability to hear the oppressed. And I think that's partly what you're describing. Absolutely. It's not love, first of all, <clears throat> or this behavior of expressing love is not that I like you necessarily or that I agree with your political philosophy or what your behavior. For example, we're meeting Omar al-Bashir, the president of the Sudan, who in the mid-early 2000s was uh, accused by the criminal court at The Hague and indicted later for crimes against humanity for perpetuating the mass rape and genocide in Western Sudan, which was horrific. I've been to Sudan 18 times, 17 or 18, been to Darfur three times, seen it firsthand, and it's heart-wrenching. So 
of course you'd go there angry at assuming this man did what he was accused. One would sit down and say, what is wrong with you? You had better toe the line, bring the truth back, stop, stop funding these John Jewweed, which can be described as hell's angels on camels, that are plundering villages, mass raping innocent women, and killing people. And you could be so angry, especially after physically being in these villages and displacement camps, millions displaced. Paul, it was more than the mind and the heart can fathom. But, but that's not what love looks like. You don't have to agree with it, but you don't have to express your disagreement. Love, it, love isn't even judgmental. It's not up to us to judge. It's for us, I believe, to love, which is a huge differentiation. Mm-hmm. Do we judge? I'm right, and you're wrong, and you'd better do the fine. That's what the four tracks of typical political, diplomatic, economic, and military, that's the four, diplomatic, political, economic, and military tracks, that's how these operate. It's all threats. It's all promises, carrots and sticks of trade or sanctions, carrots and sticks of we'll supply you weapons or soldiers or or destroy you. Uh, Diplomats try to manipulate and politicians try to implement whatever they do. So these are the tracks. They they fail 90% of the time. The 10% of the time they work unless there's some sort of redemptive fifth track, spiritual fifth track, they usually aren't sustainable. Let me uh, have you illustrate that with your meeting with Richard Nixon, who seems to be case in point of the attitude that you're describing. Yes. You know, it's funny you mention that. We were flying to Khartoum, Sudan, to see Omar al-Bashir, to pray with him and study the Quran and the Bible together and break bread together, which I think is a, those are critical components of having prayer, uh, some form of spiritual study together, whatever. It doesn't have to be the Quran, of course. Uh, and break bread. And then express these 14 elements of love, avoiding seven and embracing seven. So we're flying to see Bashir. And I was telling this one of my team members, about a meeting with Richard Nixon as a young congressman. I said, Mr. President, this is a great honor to be in the China room of the hotel here in Washington where you signed 1972, the peace treaty with China. I was with Newt Gingrich and a couple, like two or three other House members, this very small group. And I'm in charge of foreign policy in this group. Can you tell me the most important thing I need to know? And he looked at me. In his stereotypical fashion, with his jaw shaking, saying it's all about self-interest, Mark. Listen, Siljander, it's all about self-interest. And I had, I had to restrain myself not to laugh, honestly, because it was like, oh, my gosh, you just like, you know, the cartoons almost. Not that, I'm not trying to demean uh, President Nixon. It just was so similar to what we all hear about him. But he's right. It's all about self-interest. And you stop and think, who is Jesus? Was he about self-interest? No. Obama says we, when he was president, we need to be 
focusing on mutual interest. I thought, was Jesus about mutual interest? And the answer is still no. He, got, he edged closer, Obama did. It's really about sacrificial interest, where one is willing to sacrifice something without any hope of getting anything back for the betterment of a process that would move forward. So self-interest are the capstone of the problems of the world because if it's money or power, it's always about self-interest. And that was your in your description of your time at the United Nations. This uh, tell the story that, that you're meeting with people uh, and, and, and an actual concern for the, the, the uh, human concern for others uh, was, was new for them. Oh, it was, I was a politician, not a seasoned State Department diplomat. So uh, I decided to start meeting with some of the ambassadors from all over the world, every continent, 41. I mean, every small and big country, and think of not all of them, of course, but covered the entire globe at some representation. I asked them three simple questions. Tell me about you. They were almost shocked. I mean, isn't this just an obvious question when you first meet someone? Well, uh-huh. tell me about you. Uh-huh. Evidently, U.S. diplomats in almost all 41 cases, they all told me, and some had been there for years, they've never heard a U.S. diplomat ever ask them uh-huh. to tell them about themselves. Second question, tell me about the region of your world. They said no one's ever asked them that question. And the third question, it seems obvious and perfunctory to us, but it's not in these high-level diplomatic circles, evidently. Tell me about what you think America can do better to improve. Mm -hmm. They laughed at that question. They never asked anything like that. They just tell us how to vote. They may say about the weather, how you're doing, like, hello, but not really interested in knowing how they're doing, not going an inch deep if you will. And you hear this from 41, one of the stellar diplomats from every country all over the world. What does that tell you, Paul? There's a breakdown in communication uh, that it's, uh, uh, that the U.S. was seeking its own uh, selfish political interests and the West, rest of the world can go to hell. Yeah, self-interest. <laughs> exactly. Back to this is so... Here we are now, a cartoon, meeting with Omar al-Bashir, and he says, what do you want? Because I say we, there's usually a former, another sitting congressman, or a former diplomat, or religious leader, or business leader. We try to mix up, we might have a Muslim leader with us. We try to mix up the teams, make them a little diverse. And we say, we're here to be friends with you. And he says, you, in America, want to be friends with me? You hate us. I don't hate you. That, that's a government's problem, not mine. Uh-huh. He says, well, how are we going to become friends? I said, easily. I said, do you believe in God? He says, yes. I said, do you believe in Jesus as your Messiah? He says, absolutely. I believe in Jesus and all the prophets. I said, all right. Well, we've got enough to pray about. And in your country, in my country, has enough problems that we can pray for each other. And just let the Holy Spirit, you believe in the Holy Spirit, don't you? Well, of course, Muslims believe in the Ruha Quddis, which is Quranic Arabic for Holy Spirit. The Ruha Quddis 
formed Jesus supernaturally in Mary's womb when Allah blew his breath or spirit into her. I said, right, that's the same as what the rendition, rendition of that experience in the Gospel of Luke. Uh-huh. So he said, well, how do you know what the Quran says? I've been studying the Quran for the last several years and some of the Arabic words and how similar they are to Jesus' heart language of Aramaic. He said, did Jesus speak Aramaic? Most people don't know that. Even though Mel Gibson's movie from a decade ago, The Passion of the Christ is all in Aramaic. So that's how the conversation started. It wasn't, you better do this. What are you doing in Darfur? Why are you supplying the arms to the Janjui? Why are you lying at all the why, why, why? You better change. We didn't even talk about Darfur. We talked about his family, his wives, plural. <laughs> we talked about, we, he would tease me about securing a second Sudanese wife. And I said, my wife Nancy wouldn't appreciate that. So, and we, we would just, we actually became friends. And we were there for two and a half hours. So how many times do you meet a president, any head of state, anywhere for two and a half hours? Wow. And we, did, we talked all about Jesus what the Quran says about him, the Bible, how we can find new common ground in our faith. And that's what track5.org is all about. It's all about finding common ground, not just with Muslims, <clears throat> but with your estranged wife or husband or spouse or friend. This model algorithm has worked in seven conflicts and released 51 believers from prison, or hostage situations from Iran and Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Africa Republic to the Sudan. So that you're 100% success. You're actually, uh, in other words, what you're describing is a real-world diplomacy that is doing what a diplomat should do, and that is, in some way, find <coughs> personal common ground. And so that's that you tell the, the describe then the the point of your organization is then to to lay that common ground or find that common ground, as I understand it, particularly with Muslim uh, or Islamic uh, countries or people. You're very astute, Paul, and I'm not just trying to be complimentary because that descri- you describe better than I do what I do, <laughs> and, and more succinctly. Our emphasis is indeed with Muslims. I've spent many years hating Muslims in the Quran and now many, many more years studying it and finding unbelievable breakthrough common ground that can help undermine radicalization and Islamophobia both, and radicalization on the Muslim side primary and Islamophobia on the Western side. Yeah, so the answer to your question or comment is we're trying to find common ground. I was with the Dalai Lama, which that's also my book, we, we drove up to northern India where he's staying, and we spent an hour and a half talking about Jesus. Did we argue? No. Did we debate about it? Did we judge one another? Did we have particular agendas we were pushing? Did we feel arrogant or proud in the encounter? None of that. We both try to embrace the algorithm of love and behave with these 14 uh, factors that affect the algorithm in one way or another. And we had a fantastic meeting for an hour and a half, mostly about Jesus, talking about how to implement peace in, in real-life circumstances rather than just singing Kumbaya around a fire, which is fine, 
and all the peace conferences and interfaith conferences, I've been to at least 30, Paul, all over the United States and the world, and they all end the same way. Uh, they shake hands, we go back, and we are still no further ahead, you know, uh, finding new breakthrough common ground than where, when we started all these meetings. Mm -hmm. I guess, I, I know this is a kind of backward tracking, but I thought your, you, you uh, mentioned two encounters with Yasser Arafat. <laughs> Can you describe that and the shift then, uh, or how that might be representative of the shift that you're in your thinking? Oh, very good. That That's greatly representative of precisely the point we're trying to make. When I was a young uh, congressman uh, and quite a supporter of Israel, denouncing Yasser Arafat in the floor of the Congress, this was when he was still unliked in the United States quite significantly defined as a terrorist, I mean, I would just rail about him on the Congress floor. And I was just, again, a young, rash member of the House. The Capitol Police came to my office and said that Yasser Arafat has a hit on your life. So why would you bother with me? I'm a, like a just an upstart congressman. He said, we can't explain any of that, and they're going to try to kill you at the Zionist rally in Lafayette Park where you're going to speak next week. And we advise you not to go, or if you do, wear a, you know, the vest and have guards on. I said, well, uh, I'll, I'm going to go, but and I'm happy if you want to protect me. That's, I, don't, I won't oppose that either. Well, nothing happened. As you can see, I'm still here. And years later, when, when Yasser Arafat became in vogue under the Clinton administration, I was called by a Lebanese friend of mine who's Christian and said, would you consider hosting a dinner and reception in Washington, D.C. for Yasser Arafat? And he's speaking at a big luncheon during the National Prayer Breakfast Week. I said, what? Arafat's coming here? He's going to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast for the luncheon? And you want me to host a dinner for right away? The old nature rise up, correct? It's like someone calling, do you mind hosting a session with your ex-husband or ex-wife? You say, what? You know, we're not in good terms. So I thought about it, and immediately it's like the spirit, you know, in Hebrew, Arabic, and Aramaic means wind and means spirit, means like a dynamic force. So sometimes you feel a wind and there's nothing blowing at you. It could be the spirit. I felt this wind. And the wind of the spirit said, this is your chance to practice what you preach, you idiot. <laughs> Don't crush that old nature. Uh -huh. Push it down. So I said, yes, I'll do it. Uh -huh. and, I have, and we did it. We hosted it. And Mrs. Rabin, the wife of the slain Prime Minister Israel, was with him, which was also nice. And Yasser Arafat sits down with me privately. He looks me dead in the eye and said, uh, we've been enemies. I said, oh, no kidding. And he said, but he didn't mention, you know, anything other than very general. But I'm speaking tomorrow at this big international luncheon. There's going to be like 2,000 people there. It's not the big breakfast, but it's a big lunch. Mm -hmm. You know about Jesus in the Quran more than I do which I find is the truth with most, a lot of these leaders, that Muslim leaders, I'm not saying they're not religious, but 
I probably studied the Quran more than most of them have. They're not religious. They're either military or political. Uh-huh. To make a long story short, I helped him write his speech, gave him about five or six very dynamic references of Jesus and the Quran. For example, Jesus is the Messiah. How many people know that's in the Quran? Jesus is the Word of God. Whoa, really? That sounds like First John in the Gospel. You know, the, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us kind of thing. Uh, Jesus is the Spirit of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, by God speaking to Mary, a virgin's womb. And he's born sinless, and he could heal the sick, the leper, the blind, and raise the dead. I'm not preaching. I'm just saying this is what the Quran says, believe it or not. Word for it is not a Muslim I know of that say, oh, no, it doesn't. It says all that. And most Muslims, when they hear it, oh, I guess so, they just never heard all at once. It's overwhelming, especially when it's all combined together. So I gave him all these. So I went to the sitting way in the back of the room, heard his speech, and he completely, uh, we, as we say in, in millennial vernacular, blew away the whole crowd. They all, I could hear him walking out. I sat, sat in the back as, as hundreds exited after the speech. Can you believe this? The Arafat said the Lord Jesus and this about Jesus. I just don't, how does he believe? He must be a Christian. He must have converted. That was the consensus that Yasser Arafat converted. And a few people that talked to me about, they knew I was interested in Islam and studying Quran. Is all that really in the Quran? What is Yasser Arafat talking about? I said, he didn't convert, as far as I know, to anything. But that's all in the Quran. And some of my Christian friends just can't believe it and don't believe it, even though I can show it to them. But all that's an English version that you probably made up. But no, this is a from Saudi Arabia. Uh-huh. But anyway, so, it's, so that was a long story to depict a transition or transformation, perhaps even more so, from disdaining, and that's on both sides, really, uh-huh. to actually getting involved in a relationship, respect, and love, even though there's still disagreements on certain ideological factors. And so that part of what you do is to find common ground through the idea of Abraham being a shared, you know, forefather of both uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Yes, that is the elementary start. But if you want to include the Jewish component, the Old Testament, uh, we take it a little step closer and mention the Mashiach, which is Hebrew for Messiah. They believe in a Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah. The Jews are uh-huh. Messiah to come. Christians and Muslims believe Jesus is the Messiah. So we kind of say, well, what is the, the spirit of the Messiah? And we discuss that amongst all three of the Abrahamic faiths. It's quite dynamic. And part of, uh, here's anecdotal, but it might you might and your listeners find this fascinating. There was a Jewish friend of mine that came up to me. He said, you know, I really like Yeshua. That's the Hebrew name for Jesus, Yeshua. He said, but I just can't quite bring myself to accept him as science. I said, well, I'm, that's your choice, not mine. Because <laughs> I don't push this thing, you know. Uh-huh. And he said, well, do you have anything you want to share with me? Like, you know, just tell me something, please. I said, well, what if I told you that Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, 
is mentioned in the Old Testament either as a verb or a common noun because the, the word hadn't become flesh yet to make it a proper noun or person uh -huh. over 300 times. They just laughed said, that's absurd. Everyone would be talking about that. I said, I can prove to you in 10 seconds. So we simply looked on a strong, exhaustive concordance, the word save, salvation, deliver, typed it in, and boom, uh, Yeshua comes up 87 times in various forms in the Hebrew language over 300 times. And he was just completely flabbergasted. He said, so the Messiah was Yeshua, who in the Old Testament was an action verb or, or a common noun, which meant Savior salvation, is that a Yahweh's salvation or God's salvation? Is that a coincidence that Yeshua means that? And then that's what he was named uh, uh -huh. later? He said that can't be a coincidence, and he fell in love with Jesus. Uh -huh. Let me, let me uh, shift a bit. That if you had, uh, in other words, what you're describing is that there is an Islamic, there are, there are Muslims who, the, that their main form of their faith is not religion per se, but as with Yasser Arafat, you tell him about your his religion, that is that you're informing people. So that when we think of uh, the origins of radical Islam, how would you trace that? Where would you say that came from? Is it, in other words, I think what many, uh, you know, Franklin Graham said this on a television show, or you often hear evangelicals say, well, that uh, Islam is inherently violent, as if radical Islam arose as a natural outcome of people being Muslim. Uh, but I think what you're describing is is something that is more political and more uh, to do, you're describing the Reagan administration. So how would you personally trace the history of the rise of modern radical Islam? Well, that, that would be a separate blog in of itself, but attempting to be succinct, Islam means... Uh, the idea of peace, those who are submitted to God and submission brings peace. A Muslim means one who is submitted, presumably, <clears throat> to God. Islam in of itself is not violent in the terms of what the Quran directs. And my friends immediately interrupt and wait a minute, I can show you where it says, Go and kill those infidels uh -huh. everywhere you see them. And they quote two or three scriptures or verses in the Quran that, are, that sound violent. I said, now, do you think those are meant for today? Are those metaphorical? Well, I don't know. Are they contextual? I, I mean, you're bringing them out of context. What's the context? Well, I don't know. Uh, are they, is that an order for Muslims to kill us Christians and Jews now. Well, it kind of feels that way. I said, but how do you know? Who told you this? Well, I read it in the Internet, and I read it on a forwarded email. I said, first of all, there are approximately 12 violent verses in the Quran, 
add another 12 or so that could look that way. So you've got a few dozen that's, that the radicals do use. You're right. The radical Muslims attempting to radicalize young, in particular men and women, Muslim men and women, will use those, those words with politics, ideology, anger, and the need to become important, need to become part of something, and the need of eternal security. If they martyr themselves, they're definitely going to paradise, because in Islam, there's no guarantee. This is a guarantee. Well, first of all, that's what, peop that's what some people argue, but none of this is in the Quran, by the way. Uh -huh. So they'll say, but yet, but they're using it. Right, so should a Christian evangelical, should our position be, with these five or six verses that are mostly quoted by evangelical Christians, should our position be, oh my God, look at these verses, they're out to kill us, and when these vulnerable young recruits to radicalization hear their imams, some of them, radicalizing them, claiming these verses are meant for today to kill the Jews and the Christians of today, of now. And then they hear the Christians say the same thing, like Graham and others who are very public with their pronunciations. They'll look and say, well, it must be correct because the Christians are affirming these, these, these uh, verses. When in fact, the verses indeed, just like Joshua, in the Old Testament Bible that we also cherish was ordered presumably by Yahweh to massacre the men, women, children, and the animals. Uh -huh. a, a complete genocide, and this type of order is given more than once. So therefore, should we as an army of the United States in the Middle East or anywhere else engage in the same tactic. Well, they'll argue, of course not, because Jesus came and said the point is it was contextual for a time and perhaps metaphorical of spiritual battle, but that's my interpretation, maybe not scholars. But the point is, at minimum, it was meant for then and not now. Give the same deference to the Quran violent verses rather than endorsing the radical fools that are attempting to destroy you and your children why don't we give deference to the 82% according to Pew Research? We do have some empiricism to draw from about is inherent, is all Muslims inherently evil? Are they all want to kill our men, women, and children, all of Christians? 82% according to several um, uh, polls taken are not that way, want to interpret their book in a more peaceful interpretation, these handful of verses. And lastly, now, Paul, this is the most important point in this matter. Jesus had a very interesting uh, uh, he had a he had a metaphor about a speck in your opponent's eye. That would be twenty four verses in the Quran that look violent. Mm -hmm. When you've got a plank in your enough, wait a minute. What plank does a Christian have? I said there are, and I can give them to you. 1,010 violent verses in the Bible. Uh -huh. Are they violent? Some of them sound that way, but are they? If you took them out of context. And even Jesus said, what's 
perceived to be violent things, but he what didn't mean by it. For example, he said, I wish they scorched the whole earth and would have done it sooner in Luke. He said to his disciples, go sell your cloaks and buy swords. What? Jesus said that? Yes, he did, in all translations. And then he said, they said well, Master, we already have to. He goes, that's enough. He's told, he said to hate your mother and father and sister and brother. And I can go on with what just, and it's in Revelation. Read the book of Revelation a little bit, and you'll see what I mean, let alone the Old Testament, which I don't have to repeat. There are literally a thousand. So until my evangelical friends, including me, can understand and explain a thousand of our own verses, stop poking uh, someone else, especially when they could harm us directly. Let me, let me try something on you and see if you agree. that uh, the, the human problem with violence, I think we tend, to, we tend to say, oh, well, Islam or a particular religion is inherently violent. Uh, and, and, of course, some atheists would say that about Christianity. Oh, it's religion or it's Christianity per se that gives rise to violence. But, of course, it's the human heart that's violent. And that we can project that, and very often religions are simply a projection of the human heart. But to blame the religion, to blame Islam for its violence, is to miss that, well, actually, in each, in all of our cases, it's uh, that what is being addressed by Christ, the peace that he would bring, uh, is in some way to abrogate or to undo uh, the inherent violent, the universal orientation to death that we share with all people. And so it's not the problem of Islam, per se, it's the problem of the, the human heart or the human condition. I lost you. I'm not hearing you. I'm preparing in about a week to go to Geneva to make a presentation at the UN of what causes this hate and perception of unequal citizenship, you know, amongst faiths and tribes. And, and they're all they're going to all philosophize what that might be the core. You've hit it, Paul. The core is the dark side of the of the human heart. And until the human heart is reconciled with God, nothing will ever change, whether it's Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, it really doesn't matter. Judaism, look at the history in the Old Testament, and Christians with crusades and pogroms against Jews. And how about the 30-year war that decimated a third of the entire continent of Europe by murder or intentional starvation or disease because Christians were fighting each other. Uh -huh. And look, I'll, I'll conclude with Sudan. Look at Sudan. First it was Muslims and Christians killing each other. Then the Christians broke off, formed their own country. And, and in between, the Muslims in Darfur started massacring each other in a genocide, different kinds of Muslims. And now Christians of the South had broke away from the crazy Muslims in the North killing each other. They're killing each other and facing millions the starvation of famine. So all of us have used religion, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, to perpetuate unimaginable terror because it comes down to the human heart. Okay, Muslims, Christians, and so I love God. And we're back to where we started, Paul. But do you love your neighbor? Because the Quran says the same thing. 
Jesus was quoting in Mark, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. He wasn't just picking it out there. He's quoting the Old Testament. So in all the Abrahamic things, it's clear that loving God is insufficient. Maybe you'll go to heaven loving God, but in terms of being a complete believer, one must also embrace your enemy. But the missing component, Paul, I'll come back to this in the end here, was the missing component has always been how? How do I love people, in my case, who prosecutors who lied, who uh, made up stories, who bankrupted my family, hurt me so much? How do I forgive and love them? Well, once you break through that type of complexity of emotions, it's amazing what can happen. And maybe, uh, do it, would it be, uh, can we broach the subject that you went to prison? Sure. Can you explain what happened? And you're describing something very personal here. You're, you're wanting yeah. to, and so can you uh, relay that a little bit? Uh, why did you go to prison? <laughs> well, it's, it's very simple, really. Special interest, back to Richard Nixon, our discussion earlier. I was meddling in the late 90s with a secret meeting in Tripoli, Libya, with Saddam's regime, working for a couple of years to bring Saddam into the fold and using this model we're talking about. Here's Saddam. I mean, excuse me, Muammar Gaddafi. I said the wrong name. Mm -hmm. Muammar Gaddafi to bring him back into the fold in Libya. And <clears throat> people laughed and said, he is crazy, mentally disturbed. You're never going to bring Gaddafi out of it. We denounce weapons of mass destruction, denounces pan-African ambitions, started building U.S. hotels and selling oil, and we had a real approach model Gaddafi. How do you think that happened? It happened because this specific algorithm of love and behavior was implemented to him over a year and a half successfully. And then when the Bush people came in, my people, the neocons, flooded through the administration, they said, you, Siljander, Mark Siljander, are a traitor, and I was threatened to stop meddling into foreign affairs. Then when there was a rush to war in Iraq in 2001 and two, we went to war in March 2003, you can get the timeline, <laughs> I had two secret meetings, one in Jordan in 2001, another one in early 2002 in Baghdad, trying to stop the war and getting a clear understanding of the Iraqi side and was getting traction with House and Senate members until a congressman called me who was setting up meetings trying, as I was trying to convince the Republicans not to go to war because the Democrats were already against the war, that if I continued on this, what they said, crusade, I hate that word, but that's what they he used, uh -huh. crusade against the Iraq war, that I'd be... Uh, tried for treason. That was another threat. Who was the, then, who, who threatened you specifically? Uh, it was the uh, Ch Cheney, it was the Bush administration. Uh -huh. It was through a congressman. He, the congressman personally did not threaten him. <laughs> it was more through, um, it was through him. They told him to tell me. And I'd rather not give his name. He just retired recently, and I'd rather not give his name, but I will in my next book. Uh -huh. So I, my wife said we have four young children. You know, they're serious. These guys are tough. 
So I uh, uncourageously, honestly, moved on to, to Sudan, trying to work with hated Omar al-Bashir to deploy United Nations peacekeepers and the genocide mass rapes in Darfur, and it was quite successful. Unbeknownst to me, according to Wesley Clark, the retired general, the Bush administration, the neocons, had a group of countries they wanted to replace the regime. I was meddling in four of these countries, and if the regimes are behaving, they have less leverage by which to remove them. So right. I was an irritant and needed to be removed, <clears throat> and uh, I was indicted for what they claim conspiracy and money laundering with Muslims, and then they said it was about terror funding, and it was, oh, it was horrible. The things they said were crazy. But there was no charges, however, that were national security related, but they made it sound like that because that's what sticks on Google, and my reputation was destroyed. I had my first book talking about all these exploits that you read uh, by Harper Collins with the Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary General writing the forward, the Catholic Church, the Evangelicals, Ayatollahs, endorsements, James Baker, Ed Meath. I mean, it was the <clears throat> who's who of politics, military, and faith. And they felt it was, I was just gaining too much traction with too many people and needed to be uh, taught a lesson. Oh. And it was a horrible lesson. We were a broken family. <clears throat> they finally settled with all the other charges so foolish, they finally argued, well, I'm a liar. I lied about lobbying for a Muslim charity, and uh, that's what they finally got me with, is lying about, did I lobby or did I not lobby? That's it. And so you were faced with, uh, <laughs> they were threatening you with years and years in, in prison. Oh, if I had not admitted, at least that I didn't register as a lobbyist and lied to the FBI whether I was a lobbying or not, said, that'll be minor. We'll, we will use the Patriot Act against you. This is what I was told. Uh -huh. For going to Sudan a dozen times, giving advice to a terrorist regime on the terrorist list of terror states, but I said, wait a minute, my advice wasn't paid for. The advice was to try to deploy United Nations peacekeepers to stop a genocide. Right. You should give an award for that, not an indictment. So it doesn't matter its purpose. Did you give it advice or not? I said, but this doesn't make any sense. I had, this is ridiculous. They said, it doesn't matter. You would admit to this, we re-indict you, and you go to life, prison for life. So, whoa. All right, I lied. I should have registered as a lobbyist, thinking I get a slap on the wrist, maybe home arrest for a few months and get this almost four-year ordeal over with, and they put me in prison for a year and a day. Hmm. When, did, when, uh, when did you serve that year? Well, it, was, it turned out to be more like four months because the judge cried when she sentenced me, federal judge, believe it or not. She had no choice the way it was all orchestrated. I don't blame her. Mm -hmm. And uh, she actually, the day was a gift because I could get out four to five months with it for various reasons. And four months into it, a biopsy that I asked to have done from the first week of this big lump on my upper leg turned up to be a rhabdoid sarcoma, and you can look it up, 
It's extraordinarily rare, mostly in children, and they gave me three months or less to live. Oh, oh. I said, oh, they said, the good news, you're going to be released in a week or two. The bad news, you're going to die in three months or less. I mean, it was, a, it was quite an uh, emotional and spiritually challenging experience. And uh, then they, 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 to really condense this story, they discovered that I might be able to treat it which would be an anomaly, and I couldn't afford the treatment because Obamacare wasn't in place at that time. Right. So you, they said you have a year and a day. You've only been here four and a half months. Why don't you, we'll transfer you to a prison hospital, hospital in Butner, North Carolina, and we'll treat you there and let, let the prison system pay for it. But let have your doctors at Duke and Johns Hopkins oversee it. Otherwise, uh, it might not be go well for you. And that's going to be part of my next book of how there's multiple efforts to engage in treatments that could have been deadly. But rather than that, I had such support outside, senators and congressmen calling the director of prisons, why is he being treated like this? I had 67 nude searches, uh, really, for, lot, for not rushing a lobbyist. I'm a threat for nude searches. And they sent me to a, a higher level not a camp, a higher level prison with barbed wire and cells and gangs. And it would happen to be a pedophile prison. So what is a guy like me, a white guy with no tattoos in a prison for that short of a sentence, unless I'm a child molester, then you get killed or beaten up. So they had me in a corner. So I had to tell people I was really a former congressman who worked often with Muslims, which would anger the skinhead. So I was in the corner. What do you do? What do you say about yourself? But God came in, I'll summarize to our time, I like our time is more than enough. God really, Paul, I mean this, I'm not complaining, I'm not bitter, I'm actually thanking God. The experience was horrific, but it, I feel like a better person. And it was like a, I hate to use these, I'm still, you know, evangelical background. It was like a awakening, a revival, awakening broke out in the prison. Hundreds of inmates, we got praying. We had skinheads really fall in love with Jesus, swastikas on her head, praying with African-Americans, praying with gang members of Latino gangs with tattoos on their eyelids, for goodness sake. I mean, it was a rough place. It was not a white-collar camp, you know, where you're driving in the town to pick up supplies in the day. This is where you're locked down and, and as I say, search nude often if they want to harass you. And the more the guards harass me, the more the inmates coalesced. Oh. So the irony was that all their harassment built a stronger relationship to allow God to move in me and make me a different person, much more <coughs> empathetic and loving and less judgmental uh -huh. to people and believing our, our judicial system is in prison system is in desperate need of reform, which is a whole other subject. And not because of me, what I went through, because of the men I met. Uh -huh. And the injustices are beyond imagination. Uh -huh. And I used to say, lock, the, throw them away, lock them up and throw away the key. That was a mantra by a group of us back 30 years ago. Yeah. And I, I actually wept in prison because uh, my attitude was so ignorant and so wrong and so judgmental. And I claim to be the poster boy of the Christian charismatic right. 
and I still love God, still love my charismatic evangelical friends. I do desperately, but I'm not that same person. Yes, with Jesus, but I'm starting to love my neighbor who happened to have been a covered, tattooed skinhead or a covered, tattooed gangbanger in the inner city huh. or a white-collar criminal, Mormon from Utah, or a bank robber who was one of my uh, cellmates at one time. So that's the story in a nutshell. Sorry to talk so much and be overly loquacious, but it was a powerful experience in a very dangerous place, and God just seemed, had to have been God to intervene. It was as supernatural as Yasser Arafat or Omar al-Bashir agreeing to deploy peacekeepers or Gaddafi agreeing to engage in rapprochement with the West and no longer support terrorism. I mean, that is supernatural. But the prison thing, wow, that was big, and that's going to be in my next book and hopefully a documentary and movies to come. And you are, as I understand it, you're in the midst of a Netflix uh, documentary that they're uh, that you're filming. Well, uh, I'm not involved in it, but there's a five-part series coming up next year in 2019 on faith in the workplace. And uh, they did; they came in for a 20-minute interview. It was going to be, uh, you know, part of one of the five uh, episodes, but they spent six hours wow. interviewing. Yeah, I mean, the guy said, this is the longest interview I've ever done in my life. I think that, well, I don't know what they're going to do because I'm not in control of it at all, but I think they're going to, one episode is going to talk much about prison, uh, the work, <clears throat> the struggle to come back from being completely broken. And the end result of all this, Paul, is our family, our four children, our son-in-law, my wife, even our our in-laws, we've never been closer. We all moved to be together. So cancer, prison, persecution, accusations, character destruction, financial ruin, all has brought us so close together. I'm not, I have really no complaint. Our work is more successful now than ever in terms of getting hostages released, ending severe conflict. The Holy Spirit is working so powerfully, Paul, and continues to work. See, it's not about me. If it's about me or you, Paul, it's going to be a mess. Uh -huh. If it's really about Jesus, if it's really about loving, and it's really about the Holy Spirit empowering a situation, then it can't fail. It won't if it's about me. I tell these guys, oh, you're so foolish to think you're going to go to talk to Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein or Omar al-Bashir of the Sudan, and they're all of a sudden going to behave because you asked them to. They're going to use you like a puppet. I said, probably, but they cannot use the Holy Spirit. They cannot abuse the name of Jesus to any success. That is the most powerful element in the universe, the name of Yeshua, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And how is it released? By these 14 factors of love. And to go to track, trac5.org, you can download them and read them and use them in your own life as I've used them with an estranged daughter some years ago, my wife said, you're a big hypocrite. You can love all these big murderers and mass killers all over in the world and dictators and radicals, but you can't reconcile to your own daughter. Why don't you use your little algorithm with her? <laughs> so, Paul, I look at my little card. 
and I'm thinking, let's see, how am I doing as by grading, right? The seven, am I being boastful? Yes. Am I being proud? Yes. Am I keeping a record around? Yes. In other words, I'm failing. Am I being patient? No. Kind? No. Uh oh, am I trusting that outcome? No. Oh my gosh, I'm failing the entire love algorithm with my own daughter. I am a hypocrite. Again. So I pray. I said, Jesus, if you cannot help me work out my own algorithm, I quit. And you and applied it. I applied it, and my daughter and I are close. I mean, all our family is so close. We still have disagreements. Mm -hmm. We vote opposite. We have certain behaviors that we don't agree with. But should that get in the way of our love? In a relationship? No. Our family's divided politically. It used to be all Republican. That's not that way anymore. But we're divided. But yet we have families. We talk politics. We tease each other. We've learned to take politics and make it fun mm. and laugh while we're respecting each other's differences. So why can't we do that in religion, Paul? or race, or conflict. Why not? We need to be able to dialogue. Yeah. Uh, uh, Congressman, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, and you have uh, uh, such a story to tell. Uh, I've used up uh, the hour that I promised we, we would uh, limit it to, but I so much appreciate that uh, we could spend this time. With you. Paul, I loved it. Appreciate your insightful questions. Love you, brother. And if I can serve you in any way, let me know. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.